Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryan, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy. Millions of young investors have started to dabble in shares, bonds and other investments during the pandemic. I love watching them day to day and trying to determine when to jump in and when to jump out is, uh, it's, it's good fun. That's budding trader James, who gamely put £20,000 into a Stocks and Shares ISA last July after a decade of living away from the UK. During the pandemic, the combination of extra cash and extra time on his hands made investing appealing, even if it wasn't always profitable. I find the markets absolutely fascinating. The smallest ripple can suddenly send shockwaves out across the whole thing, as where the biggest shockwave might you know, cause absolutely nothing to take place. Rising inflation has caused volatility on world stock markets, and the war in Ukraine has intensified this. You may have seen the value of investments in your ISA or pension, go down. James is one of our two guests on this week's show. Now, meet Gillian. In my early 20s, I was a nightmare with money, you know, overdrafts, maxed out. So I I kind of wanted to sort of turn the corner on that and just be a lot more sort of financially responsible. She has been investing in her company pension for years and has decided it's time to take a more active role in where that money is going. I just don't want to make Um, a decision that ends up being the wrong one when it's my pension, which is obviously um, very important. So, two very different investors with two different ways of saving for the long term. But James and Gillian both had the same question. How can they take their investment journey to the next level? Welcome to Money Clinic, the weekly podcast from the Financial Times about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, the FT's Consumer Editor. If you have no experience about investing, I recommend that you begin with our previous episode, How to Get Started as an Investor, before moving on to this one. There's a link to that in the show notes. But if, like James and Gillian, you have started to invest, you may well have hit some roadblocks on your investment journey. Did your investment decisions turn out to be wise or reckless? Should you throw out investment choices that have performed poorly or hang on to them in the hope of better times? And how can you spread your risks by ensuring that your portfolio is balanced? Well, we're going to hear from two experts who will look at some common dilemmas that investors like James and Gillian have encountered and how we might all tackle overcoming similar issues ourselves. 
To make it abundantly clear, this is not financial advice. The experts and I are giving our opinions about different approaches to investment rather than making specific investment recommendations, because how you invest is a decision you'll need to make for yourself, perhaps with the help of a financial advisor. Well, Rosie and Russ, welcome to the FT Money Clinic studio. And thank you again for coming on as experts in this investment clinic, which is something I think a lot of our listeners, young and old, are going to be interested in. Could you start, Russ, by introducing yourself? Yes, I'm Russ Mould. I'm AJ Bell's investment director. I've worked in the financial markets for over 30 years now as a fund manager. Uh, equity analyst and investment bank journalist and now at AJ Bell, which is a investment platform is a technical term, but stockbroker I think will do perfectly well. And I've been there since 2012. Stockbroker and old money. I love it. And Rosie, tell the listeners about who you are. Obviously, I know because we used to work together. We did. We did. Yeah. I am editor of Investors Chronicle, which is an online and print publication aimed at private investors. Uh, what we're doing is we help people to make their investment decisions. We analyze a wide range of opportunities in companies and funds, and we also aim to educate investors. Very, very important. And Russ, you're a reader of the Investors Chronicle? Of course. I like to keep abreast of my ignorance, absolutely. (laughs) Very funny. Okay, now before we introduce you to the two guests whose investments we'll be triaging on the podcast today, I thought I'd kick off by asking you both, Rosie first, then Russ, what you think of the investment outlook for for the year ahead? Well, we're coming out of a pandemic. That should be good news for the economy. But now we've got a big inflation problem. The world has an inflation problem. That's a major issue for markets and companies. But, you know, a lot of people are feeling quite positive. As I say, we're coming out of the pandemic, so that should give us a boost. If corporate earnings stay strong and and show some growth, there's lots to be positive about. And Russ, what are your feelings about what 2022 might hold? I think Rosie's fingered the keyword, which is inflation. If you look at the last 10 years, we've had a low growth, low inflation, low interest rate world. Uh, and if that's going to change for the next five or 10 years, then it's logical to assume that the things that have been the best investments for the last 10 years might not be the best investments for the next 10, because you're going to be looking at a completely different set of asset classes or at least a different set of companies. Yes, we may see more volatility. Yes, we may see a big change in market leadership if indeed inflation proves to be becoming entrenched. Since we recorded this interview, the war in Ukraine has amplified those inflationary pressures and added a whole new layer of uncertainty for investors. I caught up with Russ. It feels a bit flippant, doesn't it, to be worried about our investments when you consider the human cost of of this terrible war. But but we are the money clinic and Mm -hmm. we do recognise that people are worried about this. So could you talk us through, let's start with what effect all of this has been having in, in terms of, again, from the narrow perspective of financial markets, what you've seen is a considerable amount of volatility, which means asset, share, bond, commodity prices moving around perhaps a lot more than they would do normally. And you've seen some very extreme moves in, in commodities like nickel in particular, but share prices, which is probably where most investors are, are, are most active, have been very volatile. Um, mining shares have gone up. Travel, leisure, consumer shares have gone down because of a fear that um, higher commodity prices mean, and and oil prices particularly, mean higher energy prices, higher fuel prices, so consumers will have less disposable income in their pocket. So not everything has lost by any means, but certainly some things have done very well and some things have done really quite poorly. 
Now, we come back to inflation. It was already a problem, but what's happened in Ukraine is making it much more of a problem. It could, if oil and gas prices in particular stay where they are, they're still well above where they were at the start of the year and way above where they were 12 months ago. So it will have the Bank of England and other central banks in in, in the world very much on edge. There is a slight risk that whichever way a central bank moves, uh, there could be something you know suffering a little bit somewhere along the line. Now, bringing it back to investment, new investors are finding out a couple of lessons the hard way. Number one, you've got to have a long-term view when you invest. And number two, you really need to diversify. And the two are interlinked. I mean, we do talk a lot about volatility and share prices and commodity prices moving around very rapidly. But that actually isn't a problem for the investor so long as they can keep their head while everybody else is about them is losing theirs. Because if your con- your portfolio is sufficiently robust, diversified to see you through these tricky times, there's no pressure on you to sell. And that's really what you're looking to do is design a portfolio so it can get you through these unexpected kind of tail risks like wars or, 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 or pandemics and, 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 and see you through so you can still go to bed at night. Well, diversifying your portfolio is one of the issues that we really want to get to the heart of in today's podcast. We've got two listeners, both relatively new to investing, one predominantly in an ISA, the other in a company pension. So how can they each approach this? First up, our guest, James. He's 37 and is pretty adventurous. He spent most of the past 10 years in the Middle East, including Iraq. I sort of spent my time between Erbil, which is the semi-autonomous Kurdish region in the north, and Baghdad in the south. I remember when I first went to Erbil, I was backpacking in, well, when the Arab Spring started, because um, I was really keen to see what history in the making looked like. He returned to the UK last year, but how have his adventurous tendencies transferred to the investment world? He's opened a stocks and shares ISA, big tick, and he's made the most of his £20,000 tax-free allowance another big tick. He's invested half of that money, £10,000, into a low-cost global tracker fund, which reflects the share prices of hundreds upon thousands of companies around the world. I asked him how that investment had panned out. Well, let's have a quick look. I'll just open up the trading platform now and I can tell you exactly how well it's actually done. I'm afraid I'm quite a compulsive checker on this. I view it first thing in the morning and last thing before the markets close. Um, where are we? Okay, so it's actually from 10 grand over what five, six months, it's only up um, 389 pounds. Okay, but that's still probably about 387 pounds more than you would have than you would have got in a in, in a savings account. So okay, so you're you're in you're, you're firmly in profit for that one. But then the different shares that you picked. So you went for... As for the other half of his portfolio, James has used the remaining £10,000 to make some much riskier bets on shares in individual companies that he thought had been punished by the pandemic, but would hopefully bounce back. I looked at the EasyJet prices and the rest of IAG, the owners of British Airways and a few of the others, like Wizz Air have done really well. But EasyJet were in particularly troubled water and I had a sort of quick look at some of their net asset values and, you know, the equity they held, the debt they held, and then the sort of strength of the brands. And I sort of made an educated guess that it was worth a, worth a go. And so I put 
put five into that. Five thousand pounds. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, uh, within about a month, it actually gone up by about twenty percent. But then a month later, um, I'd lost about, I think, lost everything I'd made plus another thousand when uh, as Omicron started to make it, make itself felt. When we spoke to James in January, things had looked up a bit and he'd made a modest profit on his EasyJet investment. But not all of his picks have turned out as well. What's been his biggest problem? Ooh, Cine World. OK, tell, tell me about Cineweb. I mean, are you a film fan? Is this what attracted you to the shares? Um, am I a film fan? Uh, yes, I, I do, do, enjoy, do enjoy a good film. You know, you still can't beat going to the cinema for a big blockbuster. And on the same presumption that we get used to living with the pandemic and start travelling again, I thought people would return to the cinemas. And I thought all these blockbuster films that have been sitting in the pipelines and delayed, I thought there's, these are all going to come flying out. And everyone's going to suddenly return to the cinema and realise what a fantastic time it is there and how much they enjoy paying for overpriced popcorn. And yeah, this is a great experience. So how has your Cineworld investment panned out? Did it, did it have a blockbuster ending? No, I'm afraid the Cineworld has uh, is, is really tanked. I, put 2000, I bought 2000 about the peak of the Bond sort of bounce, as it's called in cinema terms, apparently. That's James Bond, or 007 to you. And it rose briefly, then bossomed back down to 50. Sadly, the plot twist James didn't foresee was Cineworld losing a court case, which caused its share price to sink even further. I've lost about 50% of the initial investments. Well, look, thank you. James, for being so honest about the mistakes you made, because the thing is, in investment, we learn from our mistakes. How can the podcast experts help you to get to the next level? What, what's going to be the sequel for your, for your investment journey? So at the moment, in terms of my watch list, I've got things on there. I, I've realised I haven't got much tech going on. I've got 1,500 in a copper mining sort of outfit in South America. I've been looking at things, you know, putting money where my mouth is in terms of supporting initiatives I think will work. So, you know, okay. renewable energy shift. So it sounds to me like, you know, your your overall question is, as, you know, as an investor, how can I take a high risk approach to investing in, in a more intelligent way? I think that you've hit the nail on the head. You know, how can I take more intelligent risks uh, with my investments? You know, what metrics do I, should I be looking at? to determine when something's, you know, well-valued or when it's overvalued. With half his portfolio in a tracker fund and half being used for those risky share picks, what did the experts make of this 50-50 approach? Russ, I'm going to come to you first just because of the faces that you were pulling in the studio when we were listening um, to, to James there. You particularly grimaced when he revealed that 25% of his portfolio by value was in a single stock, EasyJet, and then £2,000 again in a single stock with Cineworld. What can we take from these lessons? I mean, to accentuate the positives, he's used his ISA. He did his research. He actually looked at EasyJet's balance sheet and took the view that they could come through the storm, which I think is a, is a very diligent piece of work. And I like the fact that he was contrarian. He hasn't followed the crowd necessarily. He's going, well, what's gone wrong? Where has there been trouble? Where is there a sound business model that if it gets through the pandemic, these companies, there could be substantial upside. So actually, that gets a big round of applause. 
uh, where I was nearly come out in hives was, yeah, listening to um, EasyJet and, and Cineworld being a very high percentage of the portfolio's individual holdings, just because they, by their very nature, are going to be extremely volatile stocks. You need to be aware of what your pain threshold is if something goes wrong. And the fact that he's checking his portfolio twice a day leads me to think this isn't necessarily money that he can afford to seriously knock a hole in. From what I can tell listening, he hasn't panicked and sold, which I think, again, is is a great thing. And, and, and it's the fortitude that you need to do to hang on when things are going against you. is It's considerable. So I think that and he hasn't locked in a loss. Now, Rosie, coming to you. Now, the Investors Chronicle has attracted a lot of new readers under lockdown, just like James, who have been getting into investing for the first time. What's your broad view of his experiences so far? I think it's excellent that he has taken steps into the market. He's got a lump sum that he can afford to invest. That's great. He's putting that cash to work and he's investing in the stock market. That's a very sensible thing to do with it. The thing is, though, he's jumped in at the deep end with big gambles on these recovery plays. James, I have to say that your portfolio is very far from an investment portfolio. And I know he has split it in two and he's put some into a tracker fund, which is great because that's, that is what new investors need, a solid kind of foundation. But I don't think his portfolio is large enough for him to then have a second pot of very high risk plays on, on those two companies. What, what James is trying to do is take a shortcut. He is taking a shortcut. He wants to get rich quickly. He wants to double his money overnight, but he's putting his capital at enormous risk. And he's discovered that actually it isn't paying off the way his strategy has played out so far. So what do you conclude from that, Rosie? I mean, he's clearly interested in trading, but, you know, and trading is very different to investing. It's about getting in and out of shares, trying to capture short-term upward movements. But that requires skills, and you're not going to just pick them up overnight. You really do need to understand what you're doing and, and learn from your mistakes. James may have taken a very trader-type approach with half of his portfolio, but he hasn't actually done any trading. He's made some high-risk bets, but he hasn't really thought through how long he wants to hold these shares for, what percentage growth he's targeting, or at what point he might want to take profits, or book a loss, and trade them on. What do the experts think about this? If it was me, it'd be about 10 to 20% of the portfolio would be my sort of sex, drugs, rock and roll and violence part of the portfolio, where I was, you know, Picking my own stocks, learning, and maybe, you know, going for some racy stuff that if it doubles, it's going to do you a lot of good. If it halves, it isn't necessarily going to be, you know, blowing the back end out of the portfolio, but because you're keeping it to a, a, a fairly modest percentage. After that, I think a pot approach is good. And I think that's where you would then start to build a bedrock and prepare for multiple outcomes, not just the one that you're expecting. Now, Rosie, the core portfolio, this is an idea that you've introduced. If somebody was looking to set up a core portfolio in their ISA, let's say with £20,000, because that's the annual allowance and it's what James happens to have, how would you go about allocating that money towards different kinds of investments? Um, Probably starting with a cheap global tracker fund or even a mix of trackers which cover the US and the UK Europe, emerging markets. And then after that, the investor, especially somebody like James, who's interested in ideas and themes and trends and clearly does a bit of research, you could then build on that core holding with ones focused on sectors or specific geographies, you know, small caps, China, biotech. 
And, you know, these could be funds that are managed by active fund managers, which aim to outperform the market rather than just delivering the market average as with a passive fund. This kind of approach could be a better choice for investors who want to set and forget, making long-term investment choices that they review a couple of times a year. But if the cut and thrust of short-term trading is what appeals to you, then I recommend you delve through our back catalogue and listen to Money Clinic Meets the Naked Trader. There's a link in the show notes. Rosie and Russ both picked up on James's habit of checking his investments twice a day. And Rosie has a final important piece of advice for anyone who does this. Really, you shouldn't be messing with your portfolio every day. You leave it alone. Otherwise, you are going to end up chopping and changing and spending money on dealing fees and just not moving anywhere because you cancel out the gains with new losses. OK, thanks to our investment clinic experts. Time now to unleash them on our second guest. She's going by the name of Gillian. She's 34 years old and works in the legal sector. She's taken a much different approach to investing from James. And while she has a small amount of money in her stocks and shares ISA... My pension is my main investment. And I've been paying into a workplace pension since I started my first professional role. So that's around about 12 years now. Company pension schemes have plenty of benefits. You pay in a percentage of your salary and typically your employer will match this or even better. That's the free money that people talk about. You'll also get tax relief on what you pay in. That's right, no income tax is charged, the money goes in tax-free and it can grow tax-free, although you will have to pay some tax when you start to withdraw it in retirement. So, Gillian has been throwing everything she's got into her pension. Since I've been in my 30s, I've been trying to save a lot more aggressively into my pension. So um, I've increased the percentage that I'm contributing. And if I ever yeah, <laughs> if I ever get a pay rise or a bonus, I'm trying to pay in a proportion of that as well. So how much money does Gillian now have in her pension pot and where is it invested? So my total pension pot is now sitting at just over £160,000, but I've not really considered where those funds are invested. I've been focusing on the amount that I'm paying in. Um, so the entire pot is just sitting in my employer's default fund. If you haven't specified where you want your pension to be invested, chances are you'll be in the default fund too. They tend to be a one-size-fits-all fund with a limited amount of risk a kind of steady eddy fund spread over many different types of investments. So I looked into the default fund in a little bit more detail recently um, and it is fairly heavily UK based, so around 30% in UK assets. Um, and as you said, it's um, a balanced fund, so it's split between um, equities and lower risk assets, so around 40% in lower risk assets such as bonds, gilts and, and cash. So Given my age and the length of time still to go to retirement, I'm wondering whether I should consider changing that investment approach so that more is invested in equities and perhaps a, a better geographical spread just to try and maximise returns. But given the amount of cash um, involved um, and the fact that I'm a novice when it comes to investing, it does just make me quite nervous about self-selecting funds. Good point. And the next thing? Just how to formulate a strategy um, for investing between my pension and my ISA, where the, the funds are invested, if there's any pointers as to things that I should bear in mind. Um, my main aim is obviously for long-term growth, so I just want to make sure that in my early 30s, I'm making appropriate selections um, to, to maximise my returns. Let's see what experts Ross Mould and Rosie Carr both think 
And as I said earlier, do remember this is guidance, not financial advice. Okay, so lots of stuff there from Gillian. Rosie, I could sense you wanting to do a cartwheel when she said that she put all of her pay rises and bonuses into her company pension. Uh, It's absolutely brilliant that she saved so much towards a pension. You know, she's benefiting from all that tax relief. She's benefiting from contributions from her employer. Like the vast majority of people, she's in the default fund. But is, is that something to worry about? Uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. The default is designed to be very well diversified, low cost, and members should be allocated to different sections of this giant pot, if you were, depending on their age, so that the youngest members have much higher exposure to the, the high equity element. It's called lifestyling of the glide path, and then you, you move along to different parts. Gillian has two choices. She can certainly come out of the default and choose funds provided by the the pension provider. It's a list of self-select options. And that might seem quite daunting, and a lot of people don't want to take on the responsibility. But actually, if your aim is simply to increase the level of equities and also to reduce the level of exposure to the UK, which is probably sensible because it only makes up a, a tiny part of the global stock market, then she can start off by just focusing her choices on on global passive funds you know, a global tracker or look at a global tracker to work out what market allocation she's comfortable with. She doesn't necessarily have to check every one of the funds in the self-select list. Just kind of boil it down to the 10 or 20 that she's most interested in and then start doing that detailed research. Mm, Yeah, I mean, there are 200 um, funds, in fact, on the provider's website that she could self-select. So I'll, I'll bring Russ into the conversation. Now, obviously, the default fund, as Rosie has said, it's not a bad choice. No, and, it, and its fees will be capped, which are no bad thing. So you know what you're paying, which is always quite helpful as well. So. But there's no reason why she has to completely jettison it. She could no, say that she wants 80% of her pension to stay within the default fund and then ease herself in by doing something a little bit more radical with 10 or 20%. And again, I can understand her feeling uncomfortable with with, say, bonds and cash right now because of where inflation is, you're, you're effectively locking in a, a, a real loss. So if you wanted to take a particularly co- uh, worrisome view of inflation, bonds are a terrible place to be right now. So I could understand why Gillian uh, would be looking to, to, to increase her equity allocation. I wouldn't, again, as we've discussed in the previous case, take a strong view and go all in on equities because you, you could just be wrong. Something may happen. The world, the Western world may turn Japanese where interest rates stay rock bottom for 30, 40. We, we, we just don't know. One of the biggest debates in the investment world right now is the ratio of equities to bonds that investors should hold in a typical portfolio. Whether you're looking at the fund choices on offer within your company pension or within your stocks and shares ISA, this is a question you will need to ask yourself. For a young person, I think you you would certainly be looking at 80% equities. That's quite high. Some people say 90 Advisors would probably not want somebody to be taking that much risk, but I would be comfortable with that if I was in my early 30s, certainly. The old rule used to be the rule of 100. You knocked your age off the figure of 100, and that was the percentage you put in equities. That was the old rule. Now, the the tricky bit now is with bond yields being so pathetically low and life expectancy, touch wood, all things being equal, continue to expand, it's probably now the rule of 110. To recap, Russ's suggestion is to subtract your age from the number 110. I'm 44, so that gives me the number 66. 
suggesting a person of my age could consider having 66% of their portfolio in equities. Again, I stress this is just a rule of thumb, but it could be a helpful way of framing your own research. One question both Gillian and James touched upon was how often we should all be checking our investments, whether that's a company pension, private pension or stocks and shares ISA. What does Rosie suggest? Uh, yeah, I certainly wouldn't be doing it too often. I think if you have ch- if you have structured your portfolio to be well diversified and uh, spread across different asset classes, you don't need to be checking it every month. You would probably definitely need to do once a year proper thorough annual review just to see that you're keeping that it's doing well and understanding what changes you need to make, if any. You may not need to. If you're investing for the long term, you can have lots of good night's sleep and not have to worry too much about it. Mm. Okay, so final question for you both. If you had one bit of passing advice for the whole of our audience on Money Clinic when it comes to investing and allocating your investments, what would that be? Be patient. Very good. Tell me more. In Long-term investing is about turning time into money. And, you know, Mr. Buffett, I know he's not necessarily as fashionable as he once was, the legendary American investor, but he always says that stock markets are mechanisms for transferring money from the impatient to the patient. So I think that's be patient, keeps your costs down, run your winners. And I think in the long run, trying to second guess the, the timing of markets and the movement of markets, fiendishly difficult. I would say don't try to take shortcuts unless you're prepared to sit in front of a screen all day long. You need a strategy that suits what you are trying to do. So if you don't have much time, then rely on funds. Let them do all the work for you. If you're interested in investing, it is important to do the research and yeah, and follow your investments. That's it from Money Clinic this week, and we hope you like what you've heard. Many thanks to Rosie Carr, editor of Investors Chronicle, and Russ Mould, investment director for AJ Bell, and of course to our guests, James and Gillian. What burning money issues would you like us to discuss on the podcast this year? Get in touch with your thoughts. Our email address is money at ft.com, or DM me on Twitter or Instagram. I'm at Claire B. Money Clinic was produced in London by Persis Love. Our executive producer is Manuela Saragosa. Our sound engineer is Breen Turner. And the original music is by Metaphor Music. And finally, as I said at the beginning, the Money Clinic podcast is a general discussion around financial topics and does not constitute an investment recommendation or individual financial advice. For that, you'll need to find an independent financial advisor. That's the small print over and done with. See you back here soon. Goodbye. 
The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryan, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.